Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Despite international treaties in the early 19th century that outlawed the transatlantic slave trade, merchants based in the United States continued to support and promote it by sending hundreds of illegal slave ships from American ports to the African coast. And the slave system was not confined simply to below the Mason-Dixon line. Although the last of the slave ships of the U.S. disembarked in Mobile, Alabama in 1860, you may be surprised to learn that at the time, New York City had become a major outpost for human trafficking. John Harris's new book, The Last Slave Ships, New York City and the End of the Middle Passage, is published by Yale University Press, and it brings Mr. Harris, an assistant professor of history at Erskine College, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. How much of the story is related to the politics of slavery across the Atlantic world, most notably involving Great Britain, Cuba, and Brazil? Oh, a lot of it is to do with politics, that's for sure. Um, you know, politics protects the illegal transatlantic slave trade for about half a century, and then it's politics that eventually uh, brings it down um, in the United States and elsewhere. I mean, what we are seeing here is a trade that's sustained by not just illegal slave traders, but by uh, powerful politicians who are supported by uh, powerful uh, slave owners in places like uh, uh, Cuba and Brazil and on the African coast. And the United States has got, um, you know, defenders of slavery that, you know, inadvertently, I would say, help sustain this traffic as well. And then, um, you know, the the trade really comes to an end when we see a new administration in the United States and Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party, which do a lot to dismantle the traffic. So politics is, is throughout the book and is throughout the story. But it took Lincoln to be elected, even though the U.S. had uh, outlawed the slave trade uh, in 1808. Uh, the, the British had been engaged in the slave trade from the mid 16th century until the early 19th. What led it to, to change its policy? Yeah, well, there's, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a wave of abolitionism in um, the early 1800s, which causes uh, Britain, the United States, and many other nations to abolish the trade. So by 1836, pretty much everywhere had abolished the traffic. So it's, it's illegal at, at that point um, and, and continues, of course, illegally. And that's what the book is about. Um, so yeah, you're asking, you know, why, wh where did this uh, abolitionist sort of impulse come from? Well, in, in some places it came from enslaved people themselves. If you look at um, Haiti, for example, that's the only place where we find a really successful large-scale slave rebellion in the 1790s, early 1800s. And those um, enslaved people um, not only kick out the, the French, it was a French colony, but they set up an independent nation that um, ended the slave trade and ended slavery. So that's a, an extraordinary example. But in many other places, um, there, some of the influences are... Um, um, the Enlightenment, new ideas about natural rights that are common to all human beings. Some, in some cases, there are uh, pretty hard-headed um, decisions to do with uh, reforming empire. In the, in the British case, that's important after the shock of the American Revolution. There's new spirit of reform in, in Britain. So in other places, 
it's actually pressure from the British and others who are powerful nations at the time that caused the likes of uh, Spain and Portugal to outlaw the traffic. So there's diplomatic pressure put on some nations. And it turns out that those nations, Spain and, and Portugal, for example, are very reluctant. And uh, that would be borne out by what happens after they outlaw the trade when really they just turn a blind eye to it and kind of, uh, you know, give it a wink. So all, politics is, is throughout this. And there's very strong abolitionist impulse in the early 1800s. Uh, but you know these the story is that these nations don't live up to what they had outlawed and what they said they would do. After the success of the Haitian Revolution uh, in 1804, didn't the British sense an imminent danger both to their investments and to the lives of British settlers in the Caribbean? What impact uh, did all of this have on uh, Britain's lucrative Caribbean colonies like Jamaica and Barbados? Yeah, that's the important question. I mean, one of the impacts, um, ironically, of the successful rebellion by enslaved people in, in Haiti is that um, slavery becomes entrenched in other places. So places like Cuba, where, where slavery had existed for a long time, um, actually slavery motors gets uh, stronger and faster. Some of these nations um, are, are moving some of these places are moving into the place that Haiti once held. So uh, places like Cuba and Brazil, which would be the two big areas where Africans would be illegally trafficked um, through the illegal slave trade. That's a direct um, connection and, um, and a result of the, the Haitian revolution. At, you're asking about Britain, and Britain is, is moving in, in the other direction towards suppressing that, that traffic. But Haiti's central and part of the part of that abolitionist story in the early 1800s, but it has different kinds of effects depending where you look. Well, Cuba, as you say, it was continuing. Didn't President James Knox Polk offer to purchase Cuba from Spain in 1845? Was, yeah, that, was that as a way of uh, making Southerners happy? Uh, they could uh, maintain slavery there, even if uh, it was shut down in this country? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, there are many American presidents that uh, seek to wrest Cuba from Spain, Cuba being a Spanish colony. And um, that is, uh, that's a long-running aim, really, since the days of... Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson and the 1840s it, it ratchets up and there are you know cash offers made by the United States to, to Spain for the, the purchase of Cuba and but Cuba is a very um, wealthy colony and very valuable to Spain at this point uh, because of slavery and sugar and, uh, and the slave trade to Cuba and Spain don't want to get get rid of it um, and we can certainly talk about this, but that's, you know, the American ambitions in Cuba is, is certainly one of the main reasons I argue why the traffic uh, continues in the 1850s and 1860s. Getting back to Britain, in 1807, the House of Commons passed the Slave Trade Act, which made the participation of British ships and citizens in the slave trade illegal and gained praise from people like Frederick Douglass. Um, didn't the U.S. follow suit in 1808 with the act prohibiting importation of slaves? They did, yes. Yeah, so really around about the same time, um, 
those laws go into effect. That's 1808, those laws go into effect. So you're seeing that um, occur around about the same time, yeah. But the, the, the although the uh, we passed the act prohibiting importation of slaves, which outlawed U.S. involvement in the non-domestic slave trade, didn't the slave trade just continue anyway? Well, it, that's that's a good question because it, it did and it didn't. It did and it didn't. Um, there are few importations of enslaved Africans after 1808 into the United States. So we do not see many illegal slave ships turning up in places like South Carolina or even on the Gulf Coast. There are some, but not very many. So in that respect, the... Uh, you know, act of Congress banning the slave trade was quite effective. But in another way, it most certainly was not. And that was that the United States ships carried hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans to other places. And that's the story, the illegal slave trade to Cuba and to Brazil predominantly. And this goes on in very large scale in the 1830s and 1840s. And in my book is primarily about the 1850s and 1860s when it was still going on to Cuba. So we don't see many enslaved Africans uh, trafficked um, across the Atlantic Ocean to the American South, but we do see them trafficked on American ships to Cuba and to Brazil. Well, during the first half of the 19th century, more than 75% of enslaved Africans transported across the Atlantic were sent to Brazil. How much of an impact did Brazil's abolition of its slave trade in 1850 have on the inner workings of the illegal traffic in the United States? It had a huge impact, huge impact. And, you know, in the 1830s and 1840s, those American ships that I'm talking about, they are um, being sailed from, uh, from Cuban ports and Brazilian ports to the African coast and then back to Brazil and to Cuba. So there's not really um, a direct connection with the United States uh, land mass, if you will. Um, but that changes in 1850. As you point out, 1850, Brazil finally gets serious about enforcing its laws, suppressing the illegal trade to its shores. And this causes a, a major crisis in the Atlantic world, in Brazil and on the African coast. Slave traders now have to think, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to just back out of the illegal slave trade or are we going to try to sustain it in some way? And, and most people back out. Um, but about a dozen or so traffickers move from places like Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and Angola in West Africa and they sail to New York City. Why New York? Well, they turn up to New York um, because New York is perfect for illegal slave trading for their, from their perspective. It is the largest city in the Americas. It is a booming, booming port. It has corrupt officials. And um, you know the key thing here also is that um, American ships. It's American ships. American ships, ships bought by Americans have the right to fly the stars and stripes, the American flag. And that matters because the British, as you pointed out, are abolitionists and they're pretty serious about 
suppressing the slave trade wherever it exists. And they have actually got a naval fleet on the African coast that tries to intercept ships of all kinds of nations, but it cannot intercept ships with the American flag. The American government will not allow that, nor will the American people. So the slave traders are coming to New York to harness the shipping capacity of that particular city and um, the American flag in particular. So that's where they flood and they arrive in the early 1850s. And here we have the United States, somewhere in the United States, now a port in the United States being really involved in slave trade in a big, big way for the first time in about a generation. Why did the United States uh, reject British efforts? Were we still uh, resenting the, the American Revolution and the War of 1812 or was there something else going on? Yeah, that's really hit. You've hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, we might think, well, here is Britain offering to enforce American laws. I mean, do the job for them. I mean, uh, maybe you could see it to the modern ear. It might sound like they're helping them out, but that would be to underestimate what you just said. Um, you know, the American Revolution, the War of 1812, certainly the War of 1812 was fought in part over um, disputes over you know, British interference with American ships and, and shipping and sailors and so on. So tensions are high over that issue. And it- um, and, free, and freed slaves sometimes fought on the British side. Uh, freed slaves fought on the British side in the American Revolution? No, 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 during the War of 1812. Uh -huh. uh, right. The, the the Brits enlisted as uh, some freed slaves as well, or uh, mm -hmm. African Americans that they met. No, right? Yes, yep. There there are all kinds of tensions around on the shipping issue, and so it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter if you're a Democrat or Republican in the eighteen hundreds. You are going to be dead set against Britain Britain molesting the American flying. That's how people would have put it in the day. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is John Harris, whose book that we're discussing is The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage, published by Yale University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay, so slavery was, uh, was ended in Brazil in 1850, and so a, a small group of... Uh, of slave traders came to New York City, and they were known as the Portuguese Company? That's right, yeah. Many of them came from the, the, the Portuguese world. Okay. So the Portuguese Empire, the former Portuguese Empire. So Angola in, um, in Africa was a Portuguese colony. Uh, Brazil was a former Portuguese colony. And some of these individuals were actually from Portugal proper. So they all were tied together by a common tongue and they were known in New York as the Portuguese company. So yeah, that's where the, the name came from. And did they oversee the forced migration of 164,000 men, women, and children from West Africa to Cuba for 15 years during the 1850s and 1860s, I guess, ending with the American Civil War? They did. Uh, and this is, yeah, this is the, the, the heart of the book about the almost 500 ships that these individuals sent out to the African coast and they brought up to about 200,000 men, women and children off the African coast on their way to Cuba. A vast majority of them made it to Cuba. 
large numbers died during the Middle Passage. Others were intercepted by British and American naval patrols. So there's there's a lot going on. But yes, this is not, you know, you could see this as a, the tail end of the slave trade. You might think, well, the slave trade is three and a half centuries long, and this is, you know, the last 20 years of it, and it was dying away. But what we're talking about here, large numbers mm -hmm. of, of people. Now, did New York City and state officials ignore what was going on? Uh, was it one of the governors during that period, William Seward, an abolitionist, who later, of course, was in the uh, in Abraham Lincoln's cabinet? Absolutely, and he would be the architect of a treaty that would help uh, suppress mm -hmm. the trade in the end. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, you've got yeah, the Lyons-Seward Treaty, which we'll get to later. Absolutely. I mean. You could look at it at the uh, two levels. One would be the, the local level where you have uh, federal marshals who are supposed to be suppressing the slave trade, but in fact are uh, very corrupt and turn a blind eye to much of what's going on. Um, and then um, and New York itself is, is really a, a city that's quite sympathetic to slavery. It's often called the southernmost city in the, in the north. So there's the, the local angle, but then there's the, the national angle. You know, it's really up to um, the Democratic administration at this time to do something about it, and they fail to do so. And the argument in the book is that they, as you mentioned earlier, are very interested in Cuba and incorporating Cuba into the United States as a slave state. And um, what they say is this, this is what James Buchanan and others say, President James Buchanan, he, would, he said, you know, the issue here is the slave trade to Cuba. He characterized it as not the slave trade out of New York, but the slave trade to Cuba. And he said, look, the problem here is Spain and Spain is turning a blind eye to the traffic to Cuba. And the only way this is gonna stop is if Cuba is wrested away from Spain and incorporated into the United States. And at that mm. point that we will shut down the illegal slave trade to the island, which would at that point be part of the US. So you can see how Buchanan and the other Democrats are um, really not too concerned with the traffic itself. Certainly out of New York, they're thinking politically about how to expand American empire in this moment. And so the, American involvement is downplayed at the at the federal level in the highest offices of the land. Was it also tied to the annexation annexation of Texas around that time? Yes, absolutely. That's going on at the at the same time. The eighteen mid eighteen forties, Texas has been annexed and added as a slave state, and many of those same people who uh, wanted that to happen were. At, the, at that same time, pushing for the annexation of Cuba. And, you know, of course, the way things panned out, we all know about Texas, uh, but um, the Cuban story, you know, it was just as fiercely um, sought after by many Americans at the time, although obviously it didn't work out. Uh, Britain employed a, a network of spies to combat the slave trade. And you say that one of those spies Emilio Sanchez was the most important informant in slave trade history. He was a Cuban-born New Yorker who supplied information on 171 illegal uh, uh, slaving voyages, uh, to, and he, he did that to the British for the British government for, 
all the way from 1859 to 1862, but then you write that his spying career was a failure. Can you explain? Sure. Well, he's a very interesting character and um, of a whole chapter really devoted to him and his, his spying. He was a yeah, Cuban-born American. He um, was he fell out with some of the, the Portuguese company that, that I mentioned. He, he was a merchant and he worked alongside them in lower Manhattan, but he had beef with them. He felt that they had uh, really cheated him in a business dealing and being dishonest. And he also wanted to make some, make some money and the British offered him money to spy on the slave traders. And he did that by walking the wharfs and docks of New York for three and a half years and talking to ship captains and crew members, trying to determine you know, the gossip, which, which ships were slave ships, which ones were going out to the African coast and who really owned them. And you know, when were they leaving, details like that. He passed that all to the British consul in New York, who then sent it to the Foreign Office in London, and the Foreign Office in London sent it to the British Navy patrolling the African coast for slave ships. And I make the case that he's one of the most important abolitionists in American history because at least a dozen slave ships are intercepted specifically on Sanchez's intelligence. And uh, I I estimate about 20,000 African captives are prevented from enduring the middle passage uh, from Africa to Cuba because of Sanchez's intelligence. So I think he was a really important individual. And I do say that he was a failure. I mean, but I mean that in the sense that he didn't end the slave trade. You know, his efforts were extraordinary, but even he and in cahoots with the British were not strong enough to suppress the traffic in its entirety. That really depended on action on the American side from the American government itself. And that's where Lincoln and the Republicans come in. Was part of the problem that Americans didn't want to give up coffee that had been produced by slave labor in Brazil and sugar that had been produced by slave labor in Cuba? I think um, if you take a step back and look at it, then absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you've got a a global capitalist system that is um, um, really um, running on slavery, on the consumption of, you know, goods that are produced by enslaved people, Brazilian coffee that you mentioned, uh, sugar from Brazil and from Cuba. And as long as that demand was there, and really very few Americans or even Britons uh, were too concerned about this issue, and the demand was there for those products that drove up prices for and value of enslaved people in places like Cuba and Brazil and uh, traffickers, um, slave traders saw, saw it as worth the risk. The profits were so high, 90%, I reckon. Um, the profits were so high that they were willing to defy the law, pay the bribes and to traffic um, hundreds of thousands of people across the ocean. The comparisons with Britain are kind of startling. From 1843 to 1858, the U.S. Navy captured 20 slavers, while during the same period, the Royal Navy captured over 500. <laughs> yes, so we were yes. obviously ignoring a lot of them. I mean, there, it was a reflection of, uh, you know, the commitment, commitment to the to the cause. And really, the, the American Navy were on the African coast, I would say, 
you might say nominally to disrupt the illegal slave trade, really they're there to facilitate commerce and to, to help American ships um, buy and sell um, African goods of various kinds. And they're not really a police force on the water the way that the British ships are. And the British ships are there in force and um, they take it very seriously. So since the U.S. government did little to enforce its own anti-slave trade laws between 1820 and 1860, how did abolitionists respond? Was this an issue that they kept, that they returned to, or were they largely unaware of what was going on? That is a really interesting issue. Um, yes, they were aware of what was going on, but but their attention was mostly on the slave south and on the issue of domestic slavery. And of course, this is uh, going on at the same time. I mean, the nation's coming to a boil in the 1850s and early 1860s. And it is primarily, um, you know, a, a north-south um, issue. And so when the illegal slave trade does come up, but um, through abolitionists. Yes, they, they did sometimes point to what was going on in New York. And they used that as an example of how, um, you know, slavery was sort of inexorably um, passing over the nation, even into the North. But they um, also focused on the one or two voyages that did arrive in the American South. I've said here that almost all voyages were going to Cuba, and that's true. But one or two did show up in the American South, one called the Clotilda um, in um, Alabama. And the wreck of that voyage has just recently been found in the Mobile River. And another called the Wanderer that turned up in Georgia. And so the, the likes of um, Lincoln and also abolitionists were, were really making a lot of political hay over that fact. They were saying, look, the, um, the Sea of South is... is um, really overturning slave trade laws. And so I would say there's a little bit of a misdirection there for political purposes, but nevertheless, they were dedicated to um, suppressing the illegal slave trade in all of its forms and all of its locations. And they did do so in the early 1860s when the Republicans came to power. Yeah, but that's the 1860s. Uh, up until then, you say the US government ignored, even abetted the illegal trade uh, mm -hmm. until it finally shut it down completely in 1867. Now that's a couple of years after the Civil War was over. Yeah, so what we have is the Democrats in power in the 1850s, and that's when the slave trade really gets going in New York and a blind eye is turned. And, and what were the Whigs doing at the time? Were the, what was their position? Well, by the Whigs had really... Um, ceased to exist as a political party and were replaced in many ways by the Republicans in 1854. And that's when it really got motoring in the middle of the 1850s and late 1850s. And the Republicans did take aim against it, but they were not in, uh, they didn't hold the presidency. They didn't have um, that much power in, in Congress. It was really up to the Democrats to do something about it and they failed to do so. But when uh, Lincoln and Republicans came to power, you know, in uh, the early 1860s, uh, they did do something about it. And, you know, we can certainly talk about what they did. And the, the effect of what they did was to not only end the slave trade in 
New York and in the United States, but it, the effects rippled out and to Cuba and um, ultimately the slave trade did collapse as a whole in 1867. Well, how important was it, the, uh, all of this to the New York economy? After the slave ships were financed and built in New York, didn't they require crews? Uh, they, they, uh, officials had to be bribed in the New York Harbor to look the other way. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're talking about New York City, which accounted for two out of every three departures. So how important was the slave trade to New York's economy and the growth of New York's financial district? That's a great question. I would say that there are many people involved and you, you began to spin it out there. That was great. I mean, you do, you've got captains, crews, you've got, uh, you know, people who supply ships with water, provisions, barrels, weapons, everything a slave ship needs. You've got people accepting bribes. Uh, you could go on and on. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of people are, I mean, a lot of people are clearly involved in it. There's indirect involvement, you might say, in the slave trade by many New Yorkers. Now, how big an impact does it have as a whole? That is hard to say, and I wouldn't want to exaggerate it because New York is the biggest shipping market in the Americas at this time. So I would say it is. Um, it has significance. Um, it's certainly not a, um, a major part of the New York economy. Though. Although insurance companies obviously profited and didn't the, you don't have this in your book, but didn't the Lehman Brothers begin by capitalizing on the production of cotton picked by enslaved labor in Alabama and then later move their offices to downtown Manhattan? Yeah, they were certainly involved in that. I mean, there's no doubt they're, that's a great comparison you make. And I would say that the um, New York's major involvement in slavery it, from a financial perspective, the major investment is in uh, cotton in the South. And this would, what I'm talking about, the illegal slave trade to Africa and into Cuba is, uh, I would say, smaller in nature, but still significant. We're talking about 500 ships or so. Um, so it's significant. Um, but there are all kinds of New York connections to slavery, and historians are increasingly pointing that out. And this book is a, the latest. Um, installment, I guess you could say. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. And we're back with John Harris, who's written The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage, published by Yale University Press. How do you research a story like this? Uh, were you able to access archival footage in, in all of the countries involved? Yeah, in most of them. It is. It was a tricky research project. Maybe that's why not very many historians have written about it. Um, 
because slave traders are trying to cover up what they're doing it's illegal and um so they for example they they burn their records their financial documents or they toss them over the side of the ship if a patrol is coming near at the end of voyages they typically sink their ships hmm. or bur burn them so there, there's a you know mass destruction of evidence which uh, is not very helpful for the modern day historian but um, I did dig it up and I dug it up by doing a, um, a lot of careful sleuthing in a lot of different countries. Um, London, there was great material because the British were so concerned about what was going on in New York. And that's where I find the, the spies letters and there were hundreds of them. Um, Spain has good um, records on its colony, Cuba. Cuba. And I, I went to Havana actually and dug up some records in their archives. And, and there were some um, records even in New York City that I find, and including in a Masonic Lodge, where many of these Portuguese company members were um, ensconced. So it was a wide-ranging research effort, and uh, it took me a while to pull it all together. And Walt Whitman contributed to the literature, didn't he? What led him to write about an impounded slave ship in the Brooklyn Navy Yard in 1856? Yeah, he was um, a fledgling poet at the time. He was, uh, Leaves of Grass had just been uh, published. So he was a little bit of an unknown quantity, but certainly up and coming. And he was working for um, a magazine, Life magazine at the time, and um, living in, in the New York area. And he went to visit on behalf of his employer, um, Life magazine. He went to visit one of these slave ships, and it was the ra a rare slave ship that had been um, caught before it had left New York. Most of them simply sailed out, but this one had been intercepted and impounded in the Navy Yard in Brooklyn. And um, Whitman went over and had a look and reported on what he found. And he crawled into the hold and tried to describe what he thought it would be like to be an enslaved person in the hold of a slave ship. And he wrote this very vivid account. So yeah, Whitman, um, and, and I mean, New Yorkers like Whitman knew that this was going on in, in some way, but they, they find it difficult to figure out exactly who was behind it, how it worked, who was paying for it. And his and um, other reports were sort of speculative, but they were certainly very vivid. The ship had been designed specifically to transport slaves, and, and Whitman described that hold uh, where, where the uh, enslaved people were to be, quote, laid together spoon fashion. That's right. That's right. And Were, were know, people shocked when they read this? What was the response? Well, it's, um, it's challenging to, to determine what Americans responses were to this newspaper article, but uh, there are many like it, and you would have to imagine that there was some shock, and he's, he's trying to really conjure up, he's, he's drawing the most vivid picture he can. I mean, being in the belly of a slave ship really is unimaginable, and um, it, dark, hot, um, you don't know where you're going, there are people sick and dying all around you, uh, people not speaking lots of different languages. Um, it's really trauma of the most awful kind. And in this period, one of the miserable distinctions of this period is that half of the captives on many of these ships are children. 
So that adds to um, the shocking nature of it all. And these are the kinds of things that Whitman uh, pointed out in his um, article. When do you say children? What do you mean, teenagers? Yeah, teenagers and younger. I mean, sometimes we- They were captains? People. Pardon? Oh, you mean the captives? Yeah, captives, oh. yes, that's right. Oh, I thought you said captains, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, they were bringing them over young so that they could have a long period as slaves. Yes, I think that that is one of the factors, um, certainly. Another one is that illegal slave traders did not want to carry the most incriminating um, evidence on board, which would, would have been shackles. So um, they, on the one hand, can't bring shackles with them or don't bring shackles with them. On the other hand, enslavers slave traffickers are always concerned about uh slave revolts and those did happen in one in ten voyages during the transatlantic slave trade and so i think there's a deliberate effort to um seek out uh, younger people who they view as less of a, a physical threat aboard the voyage because we see this no matter where the ship is coming from on the African coast, and these are vastly different regions, um, is a predominance of children. So I think that's a big factor too. Weren't there calls in the, the 1850s for the re-legalization and reopening of the Atlantic slave trade? There are, and um, we see that in the American South from the most radical pro-slavery um, uh, planters and thinkers, if you can call them that, of, of the day. Um, so this is a movement that gets picks up steam in the late 1850s when tension between North and South of the issue of slavery, of course, is really at its most fearsome. In previous generations, slaveholding Southerners, like Thomas Jefferson, would have said, you know, slavery is a problem and it's wrong, but... Um, you know, can't really do anything about it, but they did. And he owed slaves. Least, he did, absolutely. Uh, but he would at least have said, you know, there, this is a problematic institution. By the 1850s, you know, many white slaveholding Southerners are saying, you know, um, slavery is a positive good. I mean, this is a good institution. And, um, and the most radical of those people said, well, if slavery is a good thing, then the, the means of its creation is a good thing too. And the slave trade to which they were alluding should be opened. So let's reopen the slave trade. And this, this is a certainly a minority view. Most slave-owning slave Southerners do not subscribe to it, but some um, loudmouths do and particularly in, in South Carolina. So there's a debate that goes on within the South about reopening, although um, it's mostly just talk. There are a few voyages, but mostly it's just talk, but it, it's something that gets the attention of abolitionists and, um, and certainly Lincoln and the Republicans in the North, and they make great political hay over this. Did the fact that the illegal trade, well, that the trade was illegal, increase profits during the 1850s? Um, the I mean, I've read that. The, I think you're right. The, the average return on investment was over 90 percent. And, yeah. and I wonder how that compared with the profits from the 18th century traffic. Yeah. So the profits in the 18th century traffic are about, you know, eight to 10 percent. 
And here we're talking about 90. So yes, you're talking mm. about massive profit rate um, incomparable to previous eras. That's coming from what you mentioned earlier, the, you know, the vast demand for slave produced goods like sugar and coffee um, on global markets. That's where the profit rates are coming from. The, the, the sale price of enslaved people in Africa is, uh, remains pretty low, but the demand in the Americas for enslaved people in Cuba, for example, is very high. And that creates a, a huge profit rate for traffickers. Even though they have to pay large bribes to officials in this period, they're still making large, large profits. And some people do get very rich out of this terrible trade. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is John Harris, who's written The Last Slave Ships, New York, and The End of the Middle Passage is published by Yale University Press. Um, you trace the journey of a ship called the Julia Moulton that departed from New York in 1854. Weren't there serious efforts to stop it? There were efforts to stop it uh, on the African coast by um, the, the British, but again, the British are running into the trouble of patrolling a massive, massively long coastline and also the American flag being raised over these ships, which of course the British are not supposed to be interfering with. Um, well, really what would have happened if they had interfered? Well, a it, diplomatic would have, it would have ended in war. <laughs> well, uh, it there were some suspicions that it might have actually. Um, you know, the British intercept American ships, suspected slave ships, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico in the in the eighteen fifties, and there um, are really violent exchanges, uh, hmm. but uh, between the Secretary of State Lewis Cass and his British counterpart, and war is threatened. Um, so the Americans are taking this very, very seriously. Um, so often the British just have to let these ships pass by. So the, the Julia, Julia Moulton is one of these vessels that makes it through as most vessels vessels did. Although um, in this case, the, uh, the ship um, brought the captives to Cuba. And once they had landed in Cuba, um, they were intercepted by Cuban officials and that was very unusual. It just so happened that the governor of Cuba at the time was um, really wanted to suppress the slave trade. He was very atypical of Cuban governors. And um, it wasn't long after that he ordered the interception of these captives and the failure of this enterprise that he himself, the governor, was recalled by Spain at the behest of Cuban <laughs> planters who were fed up with his interference in what they considered a legitimate and, uh, of course, very lucrative enterprise. Well, since the slave trade was illegal, um, what did that mean? From 1851 to 1860, 159 people were prosecuted under U.S. slave trade laws. And of those, 99 were acquitted uh, or uh, they had hung juries or were just ordered released. That doesn't sound like we were taking that law very seriously. <laughs> I think that is, that is fair. I think that's fair to say. Um, yes. I mean, there, everything from 
um, jailers leaving door op doors open and, and traffickers um, escaping. That happened to um, Appleton Oak Smith and, and to others simply escaping from custody um, to others um, being um, being acquitted. You know, the, the law applied only to um, only to American citizens. And um, so defense has often made the case that the individuals involved were not American citizens. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't, but they wanted to cloud that issue. And um, so in many cases, juries didn't convict. And juries were generally very, they were sympathetic and they were unwilling to convict um, um, uh, these sailors and crewmen for involvement in the traffic. What was the goal of the Kansas and Nebraska Act in 1854, and why is it seen as a, a major step toward the Civil War? Well, the Kansas Nebraska Act is, you know, the, the broader context is the issue of, you know, as the United States expands westward, um, it, are these places, Kansas or Nebraska, for example, going to become um, slave states or or free states. And, um, you know, there's, um, the issue is ultimately, it's decided that it's going to be determined by popular sovereignty. And in other words, what the people there on the ground decide in Kansas and Nebraska. And that sets off a very violent uh, couple of years in Kansas as uh, abolitionists move in and, and um, enslavers move in with, the, with their um, human chattel. Um, so it's one of those sparks that historians would say that really starts the Civil War, at least contributes to the to the build up the, the question of whether slavery will, you know, expand or contract. Was New York City a safe place for former slaves? Didn't the, the draft riots of 1863, which were a revolt against conscription, amount to pretty much a, a bloody anti-black pogrom? Yeah, it, it did. And this is one of the reasons why New York City is so fascinating. I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, a historian at Columbia University, uh, um, Eric Foner, has called it the, the gateway to freedom because you do see enslaved people from the South passing through New York and, and some of them staying and gaining their freedom. On the other hand, you know, my book, and there's uh, other, another one recently out called The Kidnapping Club, it shows how. You know, we had that, we talked to that author, by the way. Oh, great! Excellent. Well, you know, you can you can see there that the pro-slavery uh, flavor of the city mm -hmm. as well. So there's there's it's a great microcosm of the nation, actually, New York in in the 1850s, because you've got both sides warring over this issue. You mentioned uh, or the Lyon-Seward Treaty earlier. What was its significance? This is one of the key innovations that um, the Lincoln administration puts in place to suppress the illegal slave trade. So it's um, you know, 1862 and uh, Lincoln's administration takes several steps against the traffic. And, and this one, the Lyons-Seward Treaty is really important. It permits the British to police American shipping. So if slave ships are flying under the American flag, it will not protect them from British interference any longer. But just as an illustration of how much 
Americans opposed British interference with the American flag. It was in a secret, secretly, um, secretly determined that uh, the um, it, there'd be sort of a joint press release, release if you will, that um, suggesting that the Americans had suggested this treaty and not the British because the Republican Party did not want to be seen as capitulating to a British demand. <laughs> so hmm. there was, uh, they recognized that the politics and the optics were important. Um, nevertheless, a very important treaty. And really at that point, and in conjunction with the execution of a slave trader in 1862, that is really the thunderclap, as the newspapers reported, the thunderclap that ended the traffic in New York and in the United States. That was Nathaniel Gordon of Maine. Um, That's right. Uh, President Lincoln decided to permit his execution, which was, uh, in effect, uh, a signal that there was a change in U.S. policy. What, what had he done to uh, warrant being executed? Well, he was a slave ship captain from Maine, he had conducted several slave trading voyages in the 1850s and early 1860s, but he was intercepted um, off the African coast, just outside the Congo River. And he was transported to New York, one of the rare occasions where he'd be intercepted by an, an American ship, an American naval patrol. So this was unusual. Uh, but he was sent to New York, he was put on trial, and he was convicted under a slave trade law of 1820. And that law had de declared slave trading piracy, and the penalty for piracy was death. And, um, you know, no one had ever been executed before uh, for slave trading. This law was kind of seen as you know, as too harsh. I mentioned juries earlier. Juries thought that this law was simply too harsh. Uh, but in this case, he was actually convicted. And um, then the issue is whether Lincoln would commute the death sentence or not. And Lincoln was inundated by um, um, writers. I mean, tens of thousands of people wrote a petition. And this is in New York, wrote a petition from New York saying, hey, this is too harsh. Don't do it. Even Nathaniel Gordon's wife, wrote to Lincoln saying, please don't do it. Um, but Lincoln thought hard about it and he consulted some of, you know, um, some of his, um, his uh, friends and colleagues, including his attorney general. Um, and in the end, he decided that he would not commute the sentence. And Nathaniel Gordon was led from his cell one morning uh, in the, the Tombs prison, the notorious city jail in New York, and he, uh, with a large crowd watching, was um, hanged uh, by the neck until he was dead. Did the slave trade continue in Brazil and Cuba until the 1880s? That's uh, 15 years after the U.S. Civil War. Yeah, well, what happened was this. In, in 1862, after the execution I just mentioned, you know, American involvement in the traffic really ended. Um, the, the, the Portuguese in New York fled, um, the slave trader captains like Nathaniel Gordon, you know, didn't have a market anymore. So American involvement in the slave trade really ends 1862, 1863. Now the illegal slave trade does continue in much smaller scale to Cuba for another three, four years. 
but it's really struggling. Without the United States and the United States' ability to provide ships with, to be protected from the British and so on, it just was not viable. So the slave trade really dies out in 1867, that's the last ship ever to cross the Atlantic Ocean, crosses 1867, and it comes to an end really big, large part because of what the United States had, had done. But you're right, slavery itself, the institution of slavery, not the slave trade, but slavery itself, dies in Cuba and in Brazil only in the 1880s. So it's another generation or so, and those are really the last the last places where we find enslaved people in the Americas. I'm sad to say that our conversation has unfortunately come to an end. It's been fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much, John Harris. The book, The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage, published by Yale University Press. Thank you, thoroughly enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a comment or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me directly by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to, to keep the kind of, of unique, in-depth content we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, you're not going to hear uh, an hour-long conversation on a book like this, as wonderful as it, as it is, on many other places. We need your help to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air. And I, I hope that you'll make that call right now in the name of London Lopate at Large so we can continue to bring you the kind of unique long-form interviews you won't hear anywhere else. Again, the number to call, 212-209-2950. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program during this terrible pandemic, Thank you so much. We are off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us for Thursday's show when journalist and author John F. Wessick will discuss his new book, Lincolnomics, How President Lincoln Constructed the Great American Economy. We'll see you then.